Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on November 11th, 2019. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... Well, most of these individuals who did the work were referred to as men of science. The word scientist was coined for the first time for a woman. That's Magdalena Skipper. She's the editor-in-chief of the journal Nature, which is celebrating its 150th anniversary. Nature is the flagship publication of the Nature family of journals. They are technical publications with the exception of Scientific American, which is your friendly neighborhood magazine. Skipper was in New York recently and sat down with Scientific American acting editor-in-chief Curtis Brainard to talk about the history and future of nature. So nature's turning 150 years old this year. That's quite a milestone. I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit upon that long and prestigious history, some of the core values of the journal, uh, perhaps some of the ways it's changed and where it stands today. Indeed, 150 years. It's um, a very long time. It's a very exciting time for us, actually, to be looking back uh, in the history of nature. Uh, As uh, always is the case when you look back, you discover some really interesting and often surprising facts. And some other things actually just seem to persist throughout the time uh, and are really timeless because of the nature of the journal, because of the nature of the topic that it deals with. So uh, for me personally, actually, it's been a lot of fun to look back uh, in the history of nature. One of the fundamental things that um, one very quickly discovers is that the core values of the journal, the core principles, haven't really changed that much. Um, Right from the very start, the journal had that dual purpose of working with scientists and the general public, and of course, that's reflected in the format of the journal today. You have the, the magazine journalistic part, which is more accessible, much more rapidly evolving. And you have the research part, which is the, the part where the original research is reported by researchers themselves. But there is one crucial and very curious difference. When Nature was launched 150 years ago, uh, it did not contain these original um, reports by researchers themselves. It was actually launched to be a little bit more like Scientific American is today. So uh, scientists, although at that time they were not called scientists, and that in itself is an interesting story, um, but scientists of the time would actually be asked to tell stories about their discoveries, the work they were doing for the general public as the audience. But the format in nature, this short format of of letters that were submitted to the editor, and also the speed with which the journal was published on a weekly basis was so attractive, and there was no competition that offered that format and that speed of publication, that the researchers themselves effectively hijacked nature to communicate original discoveries amongst themselves. And that's how how our research format was born probably as early as within three to five years of the launch of the journal. I, I find that quite a quite an interesting story that, um, you know, we are what we are today because we are willing to listen to, to our own audience. And looking back over the last 150 years of nature's work, what do you think are some of the journal's greatest hits? Goodness. Um, of course, this is going to be a very subjective uh, choice, but... Um, there are some undeniable um, uh, sort of star papers which we published. And, and when I say that, I mean papers that have 
clearly proved themselves to to have um, incredible consequences for for research and and for for the humanity. Um, one obvious example is, of course, the 1953 um, double helix structure by Watson and Crick. Um, it's an incredible paper on so many different levels. This is, of course, um, DNA be, having been dubbed as the um, molecule, of, molecule of life, holding the secret of life, um, and its structure, of course, being so elegant immediately uh, in this tantalizing ending of the paper, Watson and Craig say that the structure itself suggests how life itself replicates. Uh, really, really quite remarkable. And of course, the other tantalizing thing about the the paper itself is the, the sort of social history that's associated with the paper. The fact that today we know that um, the, um, the structure could only have been solved uh, with the data that was generated by Rosalind Franklin, who very clearly is not an author on the paper. And and it's it's wonderful how that story unfolded and how we understand um, uh, how effectively unethical behavior took, took place because somebody else's results were taken without their permission and without acknowledgement. Uh, but it, it really is a, a, a milestone of a, of a discovery and a milestone of a paper. Another one which is linked to it, actually, if you think about it, of course, is the human genome. Um, it came much later. Uh, there were a number of papers that, that were published, a number of iterations of it. But of course, we, we're talking about early 2000s when the human genome uh, was published. And there were two papers that were published, two collections of papers that were published at the same time. The public effort appeared in the pages of Nature, and the private effort to sequence the human genome appeared in Science. This paper had, um, interestingly, also has this dual aspect in, in its significance. The first one, of course, being the human genome, leading to a much better understanding of us, um, variation in the population, how we are all related to one another, which is absolutely profound and fundamental uh, implications. But another one actually is how science is done. Um, human sequencing of the human genome was a mammoth endeavor. It took many, many years with hundreds and hundreds of scientists coming together. And it could only happen because of data sharing and working together. And that really set a template for how increasingly often researchers work uh, today, of course, not just in that discipline, but in many others. But there are many other examples. Um, Nature published the first paper to describe an exoplanet. So a planet like ours, but being part of another solar system, if you like, a, a planet orbiting around a, a sun-like star. Uh, this is significant because, of course, it tells us a lot about the universe. It tells us about, um, in some way, also about evolution of life. Um, what's really interesting, of course, today we have knowledge of many, many different um, exoplanets. I believe more than 4,000 have been described uh, to this date. But very interestingly, of course, they're all quite different from our own planet. And in fact, the other solar systems are quite different from ours. So we are in some way an outlier, and that's an interesting thing to, to, to observe, uh, very significant. Um Nature published um, some fantastic papers um, describing our ancestors, so um, archaic hominins, 
um, initially characterization of um, just the, the human remains, so maybe a bone or a, a piece of skull. Um, but increasingly, genomics has fed into this um, investigation. And of course, what we understand now is that we're not a, a product of some linear descent from um, uh, kind of ancestors evolving in, evolving in a linear way, but actually there were many different um, uh, groupings of, of hominins. I deliberately avoid the term species because we also today know that we did, our ancestors did interbreed with Neanderthals, with Denisovans, and we all carry a footprint of that in ourselves. What a wonderful realization that is. Um, Nature published um, papers which um, today have led to um, really a, a, an explosion in material sciences. Think, for example, of um, the paper in which carbon-60 structure was descri described, so the, the commonly known Buckminster Fullerene. Nobody expected that carbon could exist in such a so fantastical almost uh, form. But that realization and then study of the properties of that structure subsequently, of course, in many steps, um, led further down the line to um, carbon nanotubes and today the sort of weird and wonderful, uh, absolutely blossoming uh, field of um, uh, material science. I could go on for hours. There are so many. It's such a rich treasure trove of, of so many wonderful uh, papers. There is another, I should mention, especially uh, important in today's um, uh, day and age when we are increasingly aware of the alarming speed with which uh, the um, atmosphere is warming up and the temperatures are rising. And of course, um, the very first paper describing the ozone hole was published in Nature, as was um, the paper which um, created a link between the effect that CFCs have on the ozone and then the ozone's disappearance. So these are, of course, fundamental papers to understanding how we, as inhabitants of this planet, um, are now adversely affecting uh, its condition. And beyond those greatest hits, which are just wonderful examples, and delving into nature's history, what types of surprises, whether odd or curious or perhaps even humorous, have you found? Well, of course, there are uh, wonderful surprises, and, and um, I certainly relish in them. Let me give you a, a couple of examples. So um, in, um, in the 50s, the um, editor of um, Nature at the time um, had a very curious approach of deciding which paper was worthy of consideration and publication at Nature. So in the 50s, um, peer review was pretty much unknown. Uh, peer review was introduced at Nature and most other journals as standard in the late 60s, early 70s. But the way Brimble, the name of the editor at the time, um, would go about deciding about papers that he was uncertain about was uh, he would actually take copies of these papers to a private club um, called Athenaeum, uh, which is located to this day um, in central London, 
and distribute them uh, among um, attending scientists, um, always men, who would then um, give him their opinion there and there on the spot whether a given paper should be published. Uh, needless to say, I am delighted to say that this process was discontinued um, quite some time ago, but that I was quite um, intrigued to discover how um, relaxed an, an attitude um, he displayed at that particular time. Another example I can give you is um, an example of uh, a paper describing the Krebs cycle, which is, of course, um, um, one of the most fundamental um, biochemical reactions that anybody who studies biochemistry learns probably in the first couple of weeks of, of, their, of their class. Um, that paper was uh, published in the late 1930s, uh, was submitted to Nature, uh, but it was promptly returned to Krebs, um, saying uh, we would um, maybe consider it on another occasion, but right now we have such a terrible backlog of papers that we have to return it to you. Um, but but do, do contact us again. And of course, Krebs decided to take it somewhere else. Um, it was published in a different journal. Um, as you can imagine, considering the importance of the description of this particular pathway, this is not uh, the finest moment uh, in, in our history. Uh, but at least, at least we were being honest that we couldn't publish the paper uh, particularly quickly. Final example, more recent, from the 90s, um, a really delightful story. This is a story of a paper that we did publish, um, but it's a paper that most people probably wouldn't think of as a typical nature paper. And so this was a, a paper authored by uh, Carl Sagan, and the title of the paper was Is There Life on Earth? Now, the paper uh, itself um, was published in the 90s. This was the time of uh, this real boom of exploration, sending probes to, in, into um, outer space to see if there was life elsewhere apart from just on our planet. Well, the rationale for the paper was that, of course, our planet is the perfect positive control to test those probes because we know this planet is teeming with life already. Uh, so that's indeed what the paper is about. Uh, the, the twist in the tale here is that um, those probes would have probably detected life on Earth. So there would not have been a certainty that life on Earth exists. So maybe the reason why we haven't discovered life elsewhere is because we're not very good at detecting it. But it's a delightful paper and a delightful title. Could you tell us a little bit about the understanding of science and what that word meant and how that concept evolved in over the years of nature? Mm, that in itself is a is a fascinating thing to consider. So, of course, what we call science or research as a term didn't really exist at the time. This was, you know, Victorian era. Of course, there was a lot of um, thought that went into how um, how we came about to be on this planet, how our planet was formed and, and how it was shaped. It's worth remembering that it was the time. So Nature was launched just 10 years after Origin of the Species was published by Charles Darwin. And it was at that time that the idea of how the surface of the earth was created, how the continents emerged, was forming. And there was this sort of, um, these ideas of, of evolution and geology really went hand in glove and, and helped uh, each other to develop. Um, 
What's really interesting is also to consider who it was who did these discoveries, who made these discoveries, and the thinking. And of course, perhaps not surprisingly, there were mainly uh, rather wealthy uh, gentlemen, so gentlemen of means, who uh, engaged in these intellectual pursuits. They used to maybe write books, exchange letters, and that's how knowledge was advanced. But very curiously, of course, um, at that time, although women were generally not recognized um, as playing an important part uh, in these discoveries and, and, and this thinking, there were, of course, women who were genuinely interested and were trying to make a contribution. Well, most of these individuals who did the work were referred to as men of science. The word scientist was not commonly used at the time. In fact, um, there are some records, uh, written records, suggesting that many considered the word scientist too flippant or not reverent enough to describe those who were engaging in this kind of pursuit. So then the conundrum was how to describe these ladies who were contributing to the advancement of knowledge. Very clearly, men of science was not suitable. Um, well, at the time, in fact, just before Nature was, was first published in the 1830s, the word scientist was coined for the first time uh, by a gentleman called Werwell for a woman, for a woman polymath called uh, Mary Somerville. So very perversely, the first person described as a scientist was in fact a woman. I, I love that story, as you can imagine, thinking about it today, how we continue to think about uh, the fact that women continue to be underrepresented underrepresented in science and among scientists, and yet the term itself was invented for a woman. How oh, interesting. And of course, today, there's quite a bit of scholarly research which indicates that diversity uh, strengthens science. It makes it better that uh, papers with greater diversity of authorship tend to have higher impact factors uh, and uh, receive higher citations. Can you tell me a little bit about what nature is doing today to promote diversity in the sciences? Mm, you're absolutely right. Um, diversity of opinions, of approaches to how to pose a question, how to address it, um, indeed increases the likelihood of successful answer and therefore, as you said, um, uh, increases the likelihood that a, a paper may be um, better received, may be better cited, or indeed simply more insightful uh, and will um, uh, spare on uh, research in, in a more effective uh, way. There are a number of ways in which we try to surface um, uh, diversity if, in research. Of course, when papers come to us, when they're submitted to us, the authorship is already formed. The work has been done. Colleagues have come together to, to form their collaborations. So the authorship is already fixed. But we try to, um, for example, use reviewers from diverse backgrounds. And by diverse backgrounds, I don't just mean gender uh, diversity, but I also mean geographic diversity. I also mean diversity in uh, the stage of career. Because each of these individuals brings um, a different perspective to a problem, um, a different ways of evaluating the solution that the, the paper, of course, will provide. And by inviting this broad spectrum of researchers to consider those papers with us, we are at the, si at the same time training them, if you like, in what we as editors are interested in 
when we consider papers. So it's um, it's a sort of all encompassing approach to to the community. Um, of course, another way. Uh, in which we can promote diversity is not just through papers or reviewing papers themselves, but we also organize events, nature conferences. We're very keen for uh, those who come to speak at conferences, uh, be they for plenary sessions or um, invited presentations from, from poster abstracts. We're very keen for them to be as diverse as possible, um, both so that they may learn from that exposure and the opportunity, but also so that the attendees can be exposed to different views and perspectives. To what extent is citizen science present in the pages of nature today in terms of the research you publish and in the ways that you're you're engaging the community? I will be honest and say that certainly the vast majority of the research we publish does not involve citizen science. There are some subject areas which are well known for lending themselves much better to involve involving general uh, public uh, in this co-creation of, of results. And of course, astronomy is one of them. Um, biodiversity and ecology is another. Both of these disciplines uh, rely on uh, effectively continuous collection of data. Um, and all of us can contribute uh, to that endeavor uh, through our daily lives. But there are some other surprising examples, and, and certainly we have published example of the, uh, examples of these papers in our pages. There are some other surprising examples where, for example, um, members of the general public, by um, lending to researchers their computing power or by um, playing computer games, which seem... Uh, just a bit of fun to those who play, but help, for example, explore the um, chemical space of the conformation of chemicals, sometimes sometimes chemicals, some, sometimes biochemicals. Um, recently, we actually published uh, a paper exactly along these lines, which was looking at uh, shape of proteins. And the the results in the paper were only possible because there was a very large group of um, members of the general public who worked with researchers to try and figure out, to, to help them, how different proteins could fold and adopt different shapes. There are many other examples like this, and perhaps they come less easily to, to mind when we think about citizen science. And it's, it's exciting from my perspective that, that those papers also appear in nature. And sticking with this theme of trust in, in science, I'd like to talk a little bit about research integrity. Um, of course, in uh, recent years, there's been a lot of attention given to the reproducibility crisis, especially in the biomedical world. Um, and then, of course, we also have uh, more active forms of uh, scientific problems, such as outright fraud. To what extent is nature working to correct or combat some of these problems, wh whether it's reproducibility or, or a more active form of uh, disinformation? Mm. So um, it is true that um, over the history of um, nature, certainly over the history of um, the whole scientific endeavor, we have seen some scientific fraud. It is also true that it is exceedingly rare. The, the real deliberate manipulation of results, fabrication of results, is and continues to be exceedingly rare. 
it may seem common because, of course, we talk about it as we should because we want to discourage researchers from going down this path. Uh, but if you look at it from a percentage perspective, it continues to be exceedingly rare. Some of the reproducibility crisis, um, especially in biomedical sciences, can be traced down to inaccurate or inadequate reporting of, of what has actually been done. Um, what do I mean by this? Let me give you a very uh, simple example. If I say to you that I made a tomato soup last night and you want to replicate this tomato soup this evening, then if this, this is all the information you're going to have, the chances are you will make a soup, uh, a liquid dish, which is probably going to be red, but it may or may not be similar or exactly like the soup I made last night. But of course, the more information I give you about how I made the soup, what tomatoes I used, did I add any other uh, spices or herbs, etc., etc., the more likely you're going to make exactly the soup that I made last night. Well, science is a little bit like cooking at, at, some, at some level. So of course, the more information you share with your fellow scientists, the more likely they are to be able to reproduce it. And this is actually where we have been focusing um, our attention in helping researchers to surface that rigor and that robustness with which they do do their research. So for a number of years now, um, we have been developing um, what we call reproducibility checklists. So these are checklists which authors are asked to complete when they submit their manuscripts to us. And these checklists are subject area specific. So we have one for life sciences. We have one for subsets of physical sciences, uh, for example, for laser uh, involving work. And it prompts researchers to think very carefully what they need to report and in what format, standard format, in the papers that they submit to us. Um, we do actually have independent validation by researchers who've compared before the introduction of the checklist and after, um, as well as with attempts that other journals and other publishers have made. So we have independent confirmation that what we're doing is actually shifting a dial, that, that it does make a difference. And, and it really, in this particular case, it's a matter of being rigorous about how you report what you've done and transparent about what you've done. And um, these approaches go a very long way towards helping solve the so-called crisis that, that we've been witnessing. And, and I'm really delighted that, that we've been able to support the research community in doing this and, and provide them the tools with which to do it. You mentioned uh, nature's role in, in, in highlighting the uh, threat to the ozone layer due to uh, human activities. So I actually wanted to ask one more question right there at the, the intersection of science and society. A lot of people would say that science is under siege today, that there is a rejection of expertise and uh, the scientific method in many parts of the world. To what extent do you think nature and indeed other journals have in combating such trends uh, and whether that's uh, shining a light, uh, as you did with ozone, on some of the, the threats to uh, climate and biodiversity today or, or simply uh, the more social uh, angles in terms of uh, taking a stand for the value uh, of expertise and, and scientific inquiry and its methods? I think nature has a very important role to play 
in that mediation of of science and and research the the message um to uh, to the general public um we have a have a better format to do it in than most other scientific journals because we have what we call the magazine part of the journal this is where my colleagues editors reporters can can spend time trying to make the science that we publish the original reportings that we publish more accessible um provide them in um a context um both in the context of um other aspects of science but also in a social context and of course very importantly those same pages um can carry articles which are directed towards policy makers so it's not just speaking to the general public but also towards the the policy makers who together with the scientists so if you like I've just drawn a kind of triangle there um should really work um hand in hand to um harvest the fruits of scientific endeavor to um make all of us as a as a the greater civil society um appreciate the importance of the messages that that scientists are um are providing and and what are the most reasonable steps that we can take towards implementing them um this is a this is an ongoing effort i i can't imagine that we will ever stop and i can't imagine that the job will ever be done and another way in which we can contribute to it is is to create a, a sort of a real bridge if you like between scientists and and the general public i i am a great believer in the fact that scientists themselves should communicate directly with the general public um it'll be beneficial to both parties i think so with 150 years of experience now how do you foresee nature continuing to evolve there are many things i think that we can look forward to um let me start with the science itself and the research itself you know nature when we were first launched we were much we were essentially focused on the natural sciences so the very classical physics and biology and maybe chemistry some earth sciences it was very um very classical the way that maybe textbooks today are still written today we think about increasingly we think about research as being much more interconnected much less compartmentalized and you see i i said research and not science because the totality of that discovery extends beyond what we traditionally call science so if you think about social sciences you they still have the word science in the label if you like but they use very different approaches and very different methodology so research becomes a much more relevant word to describe the totality of that endeavor and that's what we're beginning to see in nature that many more papers which we publish weave together um approaches from those standard natural sciences disciplines together with approaches from social sciences and that's really exciting it's really exciting because i actually believe this is the path towards um addressing some of the most crucial questions that face us today including um those associated with the societal uh, with sustainable development goals um defined by uh, un 
um, to do with uh, global warming and uh, the climate uh, change, to do with um, issues of public health um, and, and many others. So that's something which we're beginning to see in nature, but I anticipate we will see much more uh, of that in the future. And of course, that in itself will make us probably reconsider our format, uh, reconsider how we work with researchers with regards to expectations of how they report on their data, how they report on their methodology. These things always go hand in hand. And I think there are some really exciting things to look forward in the future. The, cr the crucial thing for us is to work together with the scientific community so that sometimes they lead us and they push us in a direction so that we can serve and support them best. But sometimes we can actually push them towards maybe things that they don't feel quite com comfortable doing, but in the end, together we end up growing and moving in the same direction. Um, that's certainly something that really excites me about the future of nature. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can read the article titled, Deep Sleep Gives Your Brain a Deep Clean. Not clean enough to eat off of, but still pretty, pretty, pretty good. And follow us on Twitter, where you get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 